Hey, what's up, everyone? Antonio Neves here, and boy, are you in for a treat this episode. I have a fantastic conversation with Dr. Aditi Narukar. She is a Harvard-trained mind-body medicine physician, and she's an expert when it comes to resilience, and that's what we talk about. And we talk about what she learned when she was going through a grueling 80-hour-a-week residency and an experience that changed her life. It's going to be an amazing takeaway for you. Um, Before we get to that, right now, this time of the year, a lot of people are asking themselves a lot of questions. And I want to help you because the right question at the right time can change your life. Go to the show notes, and I want you to sign up to receive the five questions that will change your life. This is free. Click on the link, put in your name and email, and directly to your inbox, you will receive five questions that can change your life. This is the right time to do that, especially as we gear up for a brand new year. Hey, I want to hear from you. I want to hear your feedback. I want to hear your ideas. I want to hear your guest suggestions and beyond. You can text message me at 310-564-7124. That link, that number is in the show notes. And last but not least, if you haven't left a review, if you haven't subscribed already, if you haven't shared this with a friend, I would greatly appreciate that. Okay, without further ado, let's get to a brand new episode of The Best Thing. Welcome to The Best Thing Podcast, where we talk to thought leaders, creatives, authors, and entrepreneurs about how sometimes the best thing to happen to you is the most unexpected. Welcome your host, Antonio Neves. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to The Best Thing Podcast, where I talk to people about the best thing to happen to them. That doesn't include the traditional markers of success. I'm your host, Antonio Neves. I'm a speaker, author, and coach. And each week I bring on a new guest who has a powerful story to tell that will motivate, inspire, and help you see life through a new lens. This week's guest is someone I first met through a dear friend of mine. What's up, Mac Dime? At my wedding, and I'm so glad that I did. Dr. Aditi Narukar is a Harvard-trained mind-body medicine physician with an expertise in the science of stress and resilience. Her work has been featured in Oprah Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, CNN, and The Today Show. She's been a speaker at the Forbes 30 Under 30 Summit and voted a top breakthrough in integrative medicine by The Huffington Post. She was most recently the host of Ariana Huffington's Mindful Parenting Show through Thrive Global. She writes about the science of all things resilience on DrAditi.com with readership in over 50 countries. Dr. Aditi, welcome to the Best Thing Podcast. I am so thrilled to be here. And your wedding was honestly the best wedding I've ever been to. And as an Indian woman, I know my weddings. Ah, (laughs) You got me giggling. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I'm really honored and happy to have you on. And so I want to start here because, you know, you have expertise that says in, in the science of stress and resilience. And what's amazing in these day and age, in this day and age, we hear so much about resilience. We hear a lot about grit. Of course, a word I feel like we can't open the internet without seeing is mental toughness. So I'm curious, what are we getting right and wrong about resilience from your perspective? And are those things the same thing? Grit, resilience, mental toughness. Great question. 
So the way I would describe the difference between grit, resilience, and mental toughness or optimism, let's say, is that if we think about a perfect storm, right? Grit is like the idea that like, just push through, we're going to get through it, put up those barricades, we're going to get through the storm. Optimism is just the belief like, hey, storm is going to pass, let's just ride it out. And the way I would see resilience is it's our raincoat. So we can't change the weather, but when you put on a raincoat, it keeps you warm and dry to get you through the storm. And that to me, grit, optimism, and resilience are all really important. But to me, resilience is really something that is key. And we are living through the perfect storm right now. We're in a pandemic, eight months in, the election, the US elections just happened, and we're living through the storm. Can't change the weather, right? So let's get that raincoat on. Ooh, I love the way you describe that specifically as it relates to the raincoat coat. And I want to talk about resilience more in a second, but I think you may laugh when I ask this question. You know, when we think about our parents' generation, is resilience just something that they had? Because I feel like our generation, like, oh, we're teaching people how to be more resilient. But when I think about my dad, a blue collar worker, parent, you know, son of immigrants that came to this country and, and other communities, et cetera, it's like they didn't have no choice but to be resilient in many ways. So is it kind of new that we're actually being taught what resilient is? That's a great question. You know, resilience is our innate biological ability to adapt, recover, and grow in the face of life's challenges. So we all have resilience within us. It is how we are biologically programmed. But I do think what you say is so interesting because I wonder if our prior generation, you know, my parents are both immigrants and resilience, I don't even know if it was a word that they ever threw around. It was just like, this is what life is. This is what you do. You overcome hardship. And perhaps it's, and this is probably a separate conversation, it's probably our generation and the generations later that are like, we demand an easy life or a good life or things are supposed to just be given to us. I don't know, but it's definitely a shift. And we're almost like going back to our roots in, in many ways. You know, we are built for hardship, right? Like Brene Brown talks a lot about that. So many other people talk about this idea of that, like, we are really good in hardship. We meaning the human species. We, we are so adaptable. Um, but resilience is really, it is like an age-old phenomenon. But now we're talking about it with the modern twist because right now we are facing stressors and pressures that our parents didn't have. You know, that like information overload times a thousand now. Back in the day, what did they have? Like TV, you know? Now we have social media of all sorts, the internet, we're being bombarded all the time with all sorts of messaging. Um, and that actually plays a huge role in our ability to mentally stay strong and resilient. In terms of the overload, the information overload you just talked about, I know something you've, you've written about and you talked about is, is the popcorn brain. Could you describe to people what the popcorn brain is and maybe some of the suggestions you have so we don't experience it? Yeah, you know, it's a popcorn brain is a phrase that was coined by a researcher. And it's a phenomenal, it's a phenomenal concept. And something when you read it, you're like, you recognize it in yourself. You're like, wait a second, is this me? It's the same thing as Buddhists describe as monkey brain, but this is popcorn brain. And the concept is basically that we spend so much time on the internet 
and things are, what is it, 5G? I'm not very tech savvy. I'm actually pretty low tech. So we have lightning speeds at which we do things and that we demand things in our life. We have like Amazon, Amazon Prime, Amazon same day. We have all sorts of like deliveries coming to us within an hour. Any information that we need, we can get it instantaneously. Now we have Netflix. That's a relatively new phenomenon. Any TV show you want, you can stream it on so many different platforms. This concept of like anything you want, whenever you want it, and right away, or we should have had it yesterday or last hour. That over time, when you are seeking that and living that pace of life online, you think that real life should be the same. But in fact, the pace of real life is really different. It's much slower. You know, like even when we're having conversations, there's this concept of burstiness, right? That was just written about in the Harvard Business Review. And it's this concept that like human connection and human conversations, like the one you and I are having, there's moments of pause, there's moments of burstiness, there's there's all sorts of cadences. But when you are constantly bombarded with the same level of information, that can have that can do a number on your brain. It actually changes your brain circuitry. So popcorn brain is the phenomenon of us constantly seeking that kind of information. And so our brain circuitry is overstimulated. And the way we, and, and it's reversible. That's the good thing. It's not a permanent diagnosis by any stretch. It's not a medical diagnosis. It's more of like a cultural phenomenon. There is something, a medical diagnosis called internet addiction. And that's something different. That's taking this to a whole nother level, but it's a spectrum. And the way we can kind of scale back popcorn brain is by limiting our media consumption. The issue is that when we engage with media consumption, say the news right now living in a pandemic, it is our self-preservation mechanism to check the news because it is what helps us feel safe. Pandemics create a scarcity mindset, and that is why we feel a compulsion to check the news. It is our amygdala, a part of our brain that is really just programmed for survival. So how do we overcome that primal urge to stay informed and stay safe? We have to do different things to help kind of block that, um, the primal response of checking the news and and what I call, what I, then my antidote to that is the media diet. And so there's many ways that we can minimize our news consumption while still being informed citizens, because that's really the key here, that you don't want to just be like, not checking the news. I don't want to know what's going on because you do. And also your biology is going to want you to check the news, but to do it maybe in small spurts, you know, set a timer, do it twice a day, just, and then when you're not, when it's not your on time of the news, you're not checking the news, get rid of any automatic features where you're getting news alerts on your phone, keep your phone far away from you when you're working. So you're not intentionally when it's, you know, so it's not right there. So you make an intentional choice to check the news. But popcorn brain is a major phenomenon and it's affecting all of us, including me. I know all of the research behind this stuff. And yet it is difficult even for me to do it because it's my biology, right? We're all just human beings. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, first, the takeaway there is just schedule your time for consumption, whether it's social media, whether it's news, et cetera. And I find that when I do that, when I'm intentional about it, what a game changer and difference. But, but as you were talking, I was laughing specifically about news because as a guy who worked as a journalist for many years in New York City, the irony is that very few journalists that I knew actually watched the news afterwards. That was the last thing they wanted to do. They would create it, but they, they knew what was going on behind it. And there's a reason why they didn't want to watch it. But also, as you talk about the popcorn brain and everything being available to us right away, it made me laugh because even on a walk today, like my, my patience is very limited. Like I listen to audiobooks and podcasts at two times speed. Like 
So when someone's talking at a regular speed, I'm like, get to it. What's happening? Come on. Because I'm listening at two times speed. And like, I'm like, what's the, I mean, I, I, yes, I'm busy. Yes, I have kids. A lot of people have busy lives, but I can listen to a book at one time speed. So I just find that that funny. And And lastly, as you're talking, I think back to something a dear friend of mine said about life. And he says, you know what life really is? Life is really like an average Tuesday when not much happens, when you don't get a promotion, when it's not a birthday, when there's not a pandemic. It's just an average Tuesday when not much happens. And what has happened is we have come not to really appreciate that. We have come not to love that. And that's what this pandemic has taught me, how these quote unquote moments that people may deem not special actually are the special moments. But that's 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 another direction. I want to talk again before we get to this question of the best thing about resilience. And one thing you talk about is it being a teachable skill. And I know you hosted a parent uh, a, a show for for parents. And just briefly, what are some things? I know I'm sure some parents may be listening about, hey, I, you know, yes, I need resilience, but I really want to teach my kids how to be more resilient. What I know you could do a whole masterclass on that, but for the purposes of the podcast, what are a few things we can do to learn uh, to be more resilient? So one of the things is, especially for parents, it's hard to fill someone else's cup when your cup isn't full, right? So right now, moms especially are disproportionately affected. And I'm a mom and I'm a working mom and we're living through a pandemic. So it's a really difficult time for lots of um, parents, fathers and mothers both. But try to fill your own cup before you fill someone else's. It's like, you know, put on your own mask before you help the, the put on someone else's mask. But our cup really needs to stay full even during these times or especially during these times. And there are many ways to do that. Resilience can be built. It is not, it, it, yes, it is an innate quality, but we can fan that flame and bring that fire up. And the way we do that is by very simple things. You know, the things that you said, like the average Tuesday stuff, and it is a Tuesday today. So <laughs> it is kind of funny. Um, things, very simple things like protecting your sleep, aiming for a 10 o'clock bedtime, 10 o'clock lights out is like you feel like your grandmother. But really, you know, we talked a little bit about age old wisdom. There is a lot of wisdom to going to bed early. They say that 10 to 12 is the most restorative time for sleep, 10 p.m. to midnight. So really being in bed and asleep by 10, especially because most of us are having fragmented sleep, right? Because we're not having good days. I mean, just biologically, we're living through a pandemic. It's difficult. We're working from home. We have kids. Kids are in, you know, there's no compartmentalization. Everyone feels very much like they're on the grind right now. So days are tough. And so therefore, it's going to be difficult to sleep very soundly for like eight or 10 hours a day. So often what I suggest to patients is like, if you're sleeping, if you're having a lot of fragmented sleep, you might need more sleep. So if you're usually sleeping very soundly for seven hours a night, ideally, we should all sleep for eight hours. But let's say you sleep really soundly for seven hours. If during the pandemic, you're not sleeping soundly, and you're having lots of fragmentation in your sleep, then get into bed and sleep for nine hours, because at least then you will get that time that you need. Sleep is incredibly important. It's incredibly therapeutic and important for building resilience because the mind is just a muscle. And so when you get strong in your mind, quite literally, you know, the rest will follow. It's also the mind-body connection. Trying to improve social connection, even now during these difficult moments, you know, no man is an island and really reaching out to your friends and family via any platform. Zoom, I mean, there's like the beauty of the internet and the beauty of technology too, right? So like there's many ways to reach out and feel connected to people, even if you can't see them. That's so critical. Um, we also know that that really helps boost our 
neurotransmitters in the brain, like things in our brain that help us feel good. Movement is critical. So during the workday, getting up and doing some stretches, going for a walk, please wear a mask. I have to always say that as a doctor, like, please wear your mask when you're outside. Take a little walk, get in, get into exercise. I know you've been like getting super shredded right now during this <laughs> pandemic. It's amazing. So mindful movement or just any movement is so, so vital for resilience. And of course, trying to focus on what you eat, you know, nutritionally dense foods are really important. Um, but simple things, they don't have to be complicated, is very much in our control. And there's so many things we can do every day to build resilience. Those are all awesome suggestions. One that I take ridiculously serious. You know, I'm an early riser. That's primarily because, you know, we have four-year-old twins and people are always like, oh my goodness, you that's impressive. You get up early. But as you know, no one talks about, they always say, what time do you get up? And, and 4.30 may sound impressive. But it doesn't sound so impressive when you say I went to bed at nine o'clock. Then you're like, no, I, I got, I feel, I feel good. I got almost, almost eight hours sleep. Uh, but no one wants to go to bed at nine o'clock. Uh, I do. I, I actually uh, love it. Those are all great suggestions. And one thing I'll add in there, that though, I think I remember reading this in the book Flourish uh, by Martin Seligman many years ago. And I feel like one of the components of positive psychology is also, and I may be using this in the wrong context, but is achievement. And, um, and I find that when I finish something, it also brings joy to my life. When, when I say finish something, I'm not talking about building a cabin from scratch. If I finish a puzzle, like a, literally an old school puzzle, I feel good. If I'm finishing a project with my kids, I, I built my kids this homemade monster jam track. And just the process of the beginning, middle and end was amazing. I feel the same way with a book. Like So I want to suggest for folks to find that small thing you can finish as well. But we could talk a lot about this stuff. But I want to get more into you and while we're here, and, and I'm sure you've had many experiences over the course of your life. And as you know, when people talk about the best thing to happen to them, typically people say things that you've experienced, getting married, having kids. People talk about graduating from university, talk about maybe buying a home, et cetera. But I know sometimes the best thing to happen to us rarely would ever appear on a resume or a bio. So what's one of the best things that has happened to you that um, has had a profound effect on, on who you are today? So- a lot of my patients have asked me, how'd you get into this? You're a mind-body medicine doctor. You focus on stress. Now you're talking about resilience. Like, how'd you, you know, I'm a regular MD. I get that question more than any other question. And it's a very personal story. And it's not something that I share often, but of course I'll share it here with you because it was the best thing that happened to me. I was a resident, a second year senior resident and working 80 hours a week, like all residents do in my internal medicine residency. I was on a notoriously difficult rotation in the cardiac ICU. It's called the CCU, cardiac care unit. And, you know, residents, they're young and hungry, not really taking care of themselves. Like, I didn't really think about what I ate. Definitely didn't sleep very much, barely exercised. You're working 80 hours a week. It's, you know, a, a chore just to do laundry. So self-care was like in the toilet for me at the time. And so I often say that like I was charged with taking care of all these people's hearts, right? Like in the CCU, but I wasn't taking care of mine. And I kind of just at some point, I, it was about a two week stretch. I just stopped sleeping. I would go to sleep and I would have palpitations at night. Felt like wild horses running across my chest and I was so freaked out. So I talked to my colleagues, I talked to my mentors. And so they said, like, you know, get things checked out. So I got my thyroid checked and I had an 
echocardiogram, you know, doctors, we get the million dollar workup. <laughs> and really, you know, when you're a young woman, relatively healthy, and you start having palpitations, like, that's the usual thing to do. We that's what we check in medicine, you check all these different things. Stress is a diagnosis of exclusion in medical practice. So it's never what we lead with. It's always like you do the workup to what we call, quote, unquote, organic etiologies, things that are actually going on in our bodies. And then when nothing is found, we say, oh, maybe it's stress or maybe it's stress related. 60 to 80% of all primary care visits have a stress related component. Wow. 60 to 80%. 60 to 80%. Yet, like you said, it's a diagnosis of exclusion. So even having that, knowing that number, that's a whole other conversation, but that blows me away. But please continue with with your story. And we did a survey once. We did a research study based on that statistic. And we found that like um, 3% of doctors in the primary care setting actually counseled on stress. And that's why I decided to do a a clinical practice solely on stress management. And this all came about because as a resident, I was super stressed. And we didn't talk about it because that was a long time ago. That was 15 years ago. It's changed now. People are much more aware of physician burnout, especially during the pandemic. It's something that we're talking about, but it's something that we've been talking about for the past five or 10 years. It's increasingly becoming more visible. And so I wasn't sleeping well and I got my whole medical workup done and I was fine. And they said, maybe it's stress. Maybe you need to be, maybe you need to relax. How do you tell someone, you know, I was, I was working 80 hours a week. I was looking at death and dying every day. How do I relax? I didn't even know the first thing about relaxing. When you relax, you just go to sleep. That's what I thought. So I'm walking home from like a 30 hour shift in the hospital because we do overnight shifts like every three days you're, in the, you're sleeping overnight in the hospital when you're a resident. So I was walking home. I was in my scrubs. I saw a sign outside. I was living in Philly at the time. I saw a sign outside on the sidewalk saying, come on in new yoga studio. I was like, oh, yoga. I've heard of that. I think that could be something I could do to relax. Oh, let me check it out. Walked into the yoga studio. This very lovely woman was teaching yoga and I was wearing my scrubs. They were clean. I always have to say that <laughs> it's definitely a hazard to walk around with your hospital scrubs where they hit, they were my clean scrubs. And I just said like, Hey, can I borrow a yoga mat? Can I do this right now? Cause I knew if I went to, when I home 30 hours a week, I'm not going to come back to do the yoga class. She said, yeah, sure. Did the yoga class. And it like changed everything for me. You know, the rest is history. Just did that first yoga class in my scrubs and the rest is history. So I started doing yoga several times a week at the yoga studio. It was on my way. I have to, I have to interrupt just briefly. I mean, just in that moment and what allowed you in the midst of fatigue to be open to walking into that studio that day? Um, I don't know if you'd previously read, knew a lot about yoga. I I know your background is being Indian. And of course, you know, if you look at India, there's a lot of tradition as it relates to yoga, et cetera. I'm not sure if there's any experience within your family, but what allowed you to be open because you could easily crash on your bed or drink a bottle of wine by yourself. So funnily enough, I'm often, or at least back then, at least I was the only Indian person in a yoga class. Yoga did originate in India, but only now after the West has really embraced it, have people in India embraced it. It's a very strange thing. By the way, what an amazing book title, The Only Indian Person in Yoga Class. Wouldn't that be a great book title? Yeah. And your wife is an amazing yoga teacher. She is. Sorry, we digress. Okay, but you're the only one in the class. So anyway, I mean, often that's how it's been. So I, it was, I was desperate. I was just desperate. I, I was so tired. I was tired of feeling so crappy. People were telling me to relax. What does that even mean? I wanted to be at the top of my game. I was training. To, I'm a doctor. I was, tra- I was in the cardiac care unit. What do you mean, relax? 
you know, I was reading when all my time off, I was just reading medical journals and I didn't even know what that meant. So it was like, I just walked by, saw it. I was like, I know yoga, this could be something. Cause I wasn't going to get on a treadmill and run when you're doing, when you're working as much as you are, I felt so depleted and I just like needed something just, it was like low hanging fruit. It was right there. I feel like if it was a block away, the trajectory of my life would have totally changed. You know, it was just like on my walk home. Yeah, and I, I just love that you mentioned a word that I think a lot of people are unwilling to say out loud is desperate because I know right now there are a lot of people who maybe haven't articulated that word and said it out loud, but internally based on how they feel, the stress levels, et cetera, they're feeling desperate. They need something. Something's calling out for them. And I love that that moment you were open enough to find yoga and you said everything changed. What door did that yoga experience open up for you? Yeah, I was just like running on fumes. Like I was like done. And then it's like, I didn't, I couldn't even have the foresight at the time to be like, oh, am I, if I'm not taking care of myself, can I take care of other people? Like, you're not thinking that way. It's your amygdala, right? Like now I know 15 years later what was happening. But at the time when it's happening to you, you don't know. You're like, why do I feel so bad? Why can't I sleep? What's going on? What's wrong with me? It's like a negative spin. And then I took that yoga class and probably for the first time in weeks and maybe months, that one hour, I was like completely blissed out and felt so deeply calm and at peace and just felt so good, felt more like myself than I had in months. I didn't know what it was. Now I do. At the time, there were no words for it. It was just a feeling. And I was like, I like this. I want to do more of this. I want to feel more like this. And that's what kept me going back over and over. It also was super convenient. It was on my walk home. So I would just, on my walk home from the hospital, stop in, do a yoga class, go home. And it took a couple of weeks to really, you know, my I started sleeping again, which was wild because I hadn't been able to sleep well. I was having palpitations. They went away. And then that was the gateway. That yoga class and starting yoga then opened me up to meditation. Didn't know anything about meditation. You know, in my family, we're a long line of doctors, my grandparents, etc., but all Western trained. Like my grandpa, you know, went to London to study at the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons. So when I decided to do integrative medicine after my experience of yoga and meditation, I told my family, they were like, What? Like, you're gonna go be a like, what's going on? Like you're giving up medicine? You're not gonna be a doctor anymore? I said, no, guys, it's like this new thing called integrative medicine. Like, what is this? This, What is this thing? You know, it's very funny because it's like, yes, all Indian doctors, but very old school um, because it's like the tradition, the, the esteemed, you know, British or Western way of medicine. Was Just briefly, was the irony of you experiencing first falling into yoga that day in your scrubs to then, of course, that evolving to learning more about meditation. I'm sure you, you delve deep into it. Was there some irony in that in the midst of these 80 hour shifts and with your call to help others that this wasn't being taught to you simultaneously? Because I also think about, you know, uh, a friend of mine in the UK, uh, Dr. Rungan Chatterjee, who talks about how and throughout his whole medical school practice, he learned barely anything about nutrition, which is obviously so important for us. But like, we're giving people pills, but we're not teaching them lifestyle type stuff. That's so important. So was it, it wasn't, I'm sure it wasn't missed on you that why am, why am I not learning this? Yeah. I mean, every day we would have this thing, it's called morning report. So you wake up, you know, you get to the hospital super early, five, six in the morning, you see all your patients early morning, 
you round on them when you're a resident. And then you go to morning report. I forgot what time it is, but maybe it's like 7am. Things start in the hospital really early. And then you have a little break after morning report. And during morning report, you talk about, you know, the nephron and the ventricles and pulmonary circulation and things that are really important for medical education. Then you have like a half hour break or so, 15 minute break before you go up to see your patients again with the attendings, which is like the the head people in your hospital, not the trainees like as residents. And in that like 15 minutes, all I would do is read research studies on meditation and yoga. Like what is happening? Why? You know, I love this stuff. Like, is there any science behind it? Because when you're training as a doctor, it's all about the science, right? You're learning very scientific things. You see a patient, you see some pathology, you talk about it amongst your medical colleagues. Like, what is that pathology? That's what you're doing. That's the purpose of a residency program. You're learning the pathology behind certain conditions. But I never knew these things were working on me, yoga and meditation, but never, no one ever talked about it. And I didn't even think it was, it was almost like in my mind, it was like, oh yeah, that's something fun to do that I can pursue as like a side gig. I wouldn't even call it a gig, a hobby. Like, you know, that's something fun, but I'm a doctor and this is like a serious doctor and this is the kind of work that I do. So when I started reading those research papers is when my eyes really opened up, like this stuff worked on me as a highly stressed 80 hour a week gunner. This is the only thing that really chilled me out because it worked on my biology. Didn't know it at the time. Started reading the research stuff and I was like, oh, the stress response, fight or flight, the sympathetic nervous system, the parasympathetic nervous system. These words were my language. And when I read the research, then it all kind of came together. That was my aha moment of like, oh my God, this stuff has like a real solid scientific basis. But of course, we weren't talking about it at the time. It was a long time ago, too. It was like a, it was like 15 years ago. Now, there's much more awareness, even amongst patients. You know, now there's a whole consortium in the U.S. for integrative medicine and like over 60 to 80 medical um, centers, academic medical programs offer integrative medicine. 15 years ago, that wasn't the case. This was still pretty fringe. But that was kind of like my moment of like, whoa. And when I talked about it with my colleagues and my mentors, what was amazing is that there was a lot of support. You know, people weren't like, oh, no, don't do that. That's like witchcraft. Um, Everyone, that's, I think, what's probably one of the great misconceptions that patients or lay people have about the medical profession is that like doctors are not open to this kind of stuff. Of course they are. They're human beings. They're living in, you know, 2020. A lot of doctors are doing yoga and meditation too. But how do you incorporate something that you do that you love into your job, into an old school establishment? That's the challenge. And that's kind of the challenge that I took on in my career um, because that was exciting and fun for me. Um, And I love that now, that happened 15 years ago. Now that I love the work that you're doing now on a, such a major level that the message is getting out on so many different levels. And I love people are, are learning more about this and it's so much more accessible. And it seems like, you know, medicine is more open to it, but and there's so much more we could talk about. But, but you know, the last question I want to ask you is you said something that really stood out to me. And you said, you know, I started to feel more like myself. And right now, I think that's what people are truly, truly craving because I feel like we've 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 swung to super extremes on both sides of the pendulum, and people are really craving getting back to the middle, if you will, more like myself. For, for that man 
that woman that's listening right now and they say, Dr. Didi, what can I do to start feeling more like myself again? I, I crave that more than anything else, more than money, more than riches, more than fame. I want to feel more like me. What would you recommend to that person to get started? That's such a great question. And the answer is going to be different for everyone in some aspect, but really getting in touch with the body and the breath. We are all neck up people. We live in our heads a lot. I use that expression a lot, you know, neck up people. And we're like always up here, but the magic is happening below the neck, right? It's like, that's our body. And so the mind-body connection is so critical. So find ways to tap into that mind-body connection. It doesn't have to be heady. You know, meditation works for some people, but it also doesn't work for a lot of people. I never recommend meditation in certain cases. For example, like deep, deep depression or if someone has a history of psychosis. So there's many reasons why I don't recommend meditation. It's a highly contemplative thing. You go in there, you go into your mind, right? So typically five minutes twice a day. That's what I suggest. So I think you can get back to yourself in many ways. You don't have to like go to a mountaintop. You don't have to wear orange robes. You don't have to do any chanting. There's many ways to kind of find your way back to yourself. But that is the greatest journey. And I think we're all on it. Um, I think now, yes, I am way more myself than I have ever been. But that is also because my very scenic route that I took to get here. And I think we're all in a journey and it's like very much, it has to happen on our own time. But there are so many ways. Check out, you know, dradidi.com. I write about very concrete things, you know, as much as things like resilience or the mind-body connection are wonderful things to think about or talk about. Ultimately, you want something practical that you can actually do in your life. And so this concept of like, how do you get back to yourself? There is actually a way, not the way, but there are many ways. Movement, relaxation techniques, mind-body therapy, therapeutic writing, social interaction, nutrition, sleep, so many ways. Um, but that perhaps is the greatest lesson of all right now for us during the pandemic. You've said it so beautifully. How do we find a way to come back to ourselves? How do we create a sense of wholeness? Human beings are meaning-seeking, purpose-driven creatures. And if any of us living through this pandemic right now can find a sense of meaning and purpose during this time, we can take that and hopefully translate that to happier times and brighter days. Yeah, thank you so much. And it's just a reminder that, as you mentioned earlier in our, in our discussion, how powerful it is. It also is to de disconnect right now because we are so plugged in. And the more plugged in we are, probably the more challenging it is going to be to truly feel like ourselves again. And just that reminder, that beautiful reminder you gave us about the raincoat earlier. So even during these challenging times right now, that, that raincoat is just a reminder that we are stronger than we think. And we always have the raincoat when when we need it. It's always It's always there. I can't thank you enough for joining me today. We're going to link to your website and all your your social channels in the, in the show notes. She has amazing blog posts on there. So I invite you to go read all of those. We're going to have you again on this, uh, on the best thing. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Thanks for listening to the best thing podcast with Antonio Neves. Join us next week for more stories that'll help you see the world through a new lens. For more resources, go to theantonioneves.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, we ask that you share with a friend and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.